Hey there, lovely listeners. Welcome back to season five of Therapy Works. I'm Julia Samuel, also psychotherapist and new fine podcaster, joined by my amazing daughters. Hi, I'm Emily. And I'm Sophie. Join us every week as we dive into our therapy room, sharing stories from voices both known and unknown. Together, we'll navigate life's challenges. Get ready for deep conversations about real struggles. We're firm believers that sharing stories isn't just cathartic, it's profoundly healing. Absolutely. As fellow psychotherapists, we're here to expand your understanding of therapy and its transformative power. After each chat, Emily, Sophie and I will reflect on lessons learned, offering insights for your own life. Our mission? Prove that even tough conversations can be a source of growth, resilience and hope. Whether you're a long-time listener or a first-timer, we are thrilled to have you with us. Each episode aims to leave you with something valuable. So no more waiting. Let's dive into this week's episode, Unpacking Life's Challenges Together. Welcome to Season 5 of Therapy Works. So Josiah Hart, I am delighted to meet you on this podcast. Do you want to start by introducing yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm uh, Jasar Hartley. I lived in Bristol um, all of my life. I absolutely love it here in the Southwest. I live in the countryside. Uh, all my neighbours are cows. Um, but it's close <laughs> enough to, to Bristol to enjoy the best of both worlds, in my opinion. My whole life, really, sort of at, at least from 16 onwards, uh, something hasn't been quite right. And I've never fully known what it was. And um, I was diagnosed uh, when I first went off to Southampton University with clinical depression. And it was actually at Southampton where I um, tried to take my own life. Gosh, that's quite a beginning. So there's such a contrast between I live in this beautiful countryside where my neighbours are cows and I have a great city I can go in and play in and do fun things. And yet, completely out of the blue, while I was at university, you contemplated taking your own life. And everything was sort of going absolutely as you'd expect until that moment that you felt suicidal. Is it too painful to go back and try and kind of remember what that experience of was, what happened to you? Well, I think uh, it was primarily down to my own um, sort of naivety and ignorance around mental health that allowed me to get as low as I did. I think if I sort of could see the warning signs, perhaps as a 16-year-old even, perhaps even earlier, I could have, you know, nipped things in the bud that developed to full-blown, proper, severe depression. Could I pause you to ask what do you think, for other people listening, you have teenage children or they may be young themselves, or like what do you think were the kind of red flags that you wished you'd taken account of and responded to? Well, it's incredibly tough, but I think for a parent's perspective, they have to trust their instincts and their guts. They ultimately know their child better than anyone else. But for me personally, I became very withdrawn. I didn't study. I didn't do anything. Uh, I naturally uh, did pretty well at school and then just wasn't going, wasn't turning up, very withdrawn. I would spend days and days and days in bed without doing anything. Um, just get up to go to the loo and get something to eat and, and nothing more than that. So that was quite a drastic shift, which um, was clearly, in hindsight, a you know a mental health episode, a, the start of something 
but what's normal teenage interaction and what's mental health? The, bl- the lines can get extremely blurred, in my opinion. In your letter to me, which is incredibly moving, you say like you were this kind of healthy, happy, A-grade student, and then suddenly you became this unsociable, shut-down, depressed young man. And as far as you and I know, there were no events. This was an internal whether there was nothing external that triggered it. No, in, in lots of ways, I wish there was. I think it'd be easier yeah. to go back and say, this happened and this led to my depression. But unfortunately, there's not. I think ultimately there'll be a thousand small things that add up that have led me to, you know, a thousand factors, genetic, environmental, everything. It's just created this perfect storm. I'd also like to say for those that have never experienced depression, it doesn't happen overnight. You don't go to bed completely fine and wake up depressed. It's quite a subtle process you know, day by day, month by month, your emotions just get chipped away until there's less of what makes you, you remaining. And I felt empty. I felt like just a husk uh, devoid of all emotion. The colours of the world drained. I sort of, it's a bit of a weird thing to say, but everything felt in grayscale looking back at the time. It was the world had no colour in it. Um, There was just no simple joys and just nothing of importance. But I I would say also, it's a, I think it's a misconception to say depression is sadness. It's uh, for me personally, often the complete lack of anything. I think for large periods of my life, sadness, it sounds slightly odd to say, but sadness would have been a, a blessing, a, a, a joy. Because it's an actual feeling. Just, exactly. Just to feel something uh, would have been very welcomed. Because what, as you're speaking, the image I have in the grayscale is that you died inside, that you couldn't connect with yourself, you couldn't connect with even the joy of sadness of being able to have a really good cry, you were just like utterly bereft. Yeah, it's that disconnect you just mentioned. It's the it's the lack of feeling like anything matters, anything important. You don't know your place in the world. And um, just everything feels very meaningless when you're in that state. And I think that's another reason why it's just so important to just be micro kind, I guess, on a daily basis to everyone you meet. Because you just don't know what the cashier is going through, what the person in the traffic jam is going through. And I look back, and um, this is a weird one. I don't think I've ever said this before, but I was driving at, at night after watching watching a football game, actually, and my lights went on on my car, and a bloke at red light stopped to put his window down, and I put mine down. He was like, oh, just so you know, mate, your, your lights are off. And I still think about that because it was like a micro kindness that he probably thought nothing of. Yeah. But to me, I almost cried because I was like, it was. I was almost recognised. She by saw it. me exactly. Yeah, um, I think that's just so important. And I feel quite cheerful because it's like not having your car lights on is so many different signals. One is that there's no light inside you, so you showed that there's no light by there being no lights. But also, you were putting yourself in the way of danger, sort of unconsciously, consciously. Def, def. That was going on a lot at that time. You know, in hindsight, you know, things like running across the road without looking, things like that. I never exactly jumped in front of a bus, but I certainly would have been opposed to the idea of getting hit by a bus, things like that. When I've worked with families where there has been a death by suicide, one of the ways that we kind of try and make sense of it, and that I don't think there's ever sense that can be made of it at, at, extremely, at many levels, is that it's like a heart attack of the brain, that you know that someone's heart can suddenly stop a young person who's fit for no reason. And 
that death by suicide isn't in one way a decision. It's like when all the firing networks in your brain kind of blow up, that's when that moment happens. And there's a line you sent me from the book, which is, the decision to end my life was one that came easily. There was not, as you might imagine, some great wrangling with the consequences of something so final, none at all. Do you want to kind of talk to that? Because that, that literally makes my heart stop and I, oh, it's so well, that was terrifying. That was, that was so scary for me. It was because um, I always had my brain, no matter what. I always have thought slightly differently to people. And I can often see the solutions to a puzzle other people can't. And I could always rely on my That's brain. Interesting. It was when that failed, I sort of had nothing left. It was always my backup. I could think differently and think my way out of things that other people couldn't. And now suddenly that had failed. So the thing that made, was part of my core identity, made me, me, was just, was just gone. It's easy to say someone who's taken their own life and say, well, how did they do this? Why did they do this? They weren't really thinking in ways that you perhaps knew them at that time. It's almost like once it gets its tendrils into your brain, it's, into, it's very hard to remove them. And it's sort of, I don't want to say short, you know, short circuits, you know, the wiring in your brain, but you're certainly not as logical or uh, perhaps even hyper-logical in some instances, and you're just not making rational decisions properly. Because So in some ways, although a heart attack of the brain is quite clumpy, I think where it matches what you're saying, and, and put me straight if I've got this wrong, is that we kind of look at ourselves and try and picture what state would I be in if I got to a point that I made the decision to kill myself. And I think what you're saying is, in this place that I am now, you can't begin to imagine the mindset, or as Dan Siegel calls, the mind sight of someone who is suffering in the way that you are suffering with, suffering with this deep depression. In one way, it felt like it was an engine that was saying, I've got to stop the pain. I've got to stop the nothingness. Yeah. That is my only engine, if you like. So as I said, depression, you know, it doesn't go away overnight, unfortunately, in the same way it doesn't come overnight. And that is quite a prolonged period of time, usually. But I think the heart attack analogy is more, as you've said, that's more of a crisis moment. You know, a brain in crisis, that's when you're like to take your own life. You know, it requires some level of planning and some level of disconnect to take your own life. And I think it, that's the crisis heart attack moment, perhaps. I think you've described what is most difficult about it, which is this sense of almost estrangement from yourself and this like deadening inside. It's a slow kind of getting there that it's too late by the time you've actually got there and then you're in it. So what is it that you've learned now that you didn't know then or that people who have children or someone who's suffering the way that you, that you are at some level and did then, what have you learned that would help us? Well, I wish there was a magic bullet and there just there just isn't that nothing nothing is an overnight fix for this. Um I really wish there was. I wish I wish I could tell people there was, but there there isn't. It's it's like in the same way becoming depressed is subtle. The coming out of the other side is subtle. And one thing I have noticed though is you really have to make use of the good days. So a bad day when I could barely lift my head off the pillow, um tens of people would say, go for a walk, just go for a walk. And that is great advice. Walking is excellent and brilliant. When you can't get out of bed, it might as well be climb Everest. 
just just go pop go pop go pop up to the shops. Might as well. That's your Everest. It's ridiculous. So, but the days you are feeling good, you have to make most of them. And I know that now. Um, I've recently started doing jujitsu, and for me, that is massively beneficial. It's extremely, oh, wow. it's extremely physical. You leave feeling mentally and physically tired, but also you sort of connect with the people there. And it's also sort of like a game, a puzzle that you have to like physically and mentally overcome. It's it's excellent. I cannot think of anything better. Um, but there are days where I cannot go to jiu-jitsu. I'm not mentally or physically able to. Um, but I know the days that I am, I must go. And I think that's the thing, really utilizing the good days, because everyone has good days and bad days. And depressed people have far more bad days than good days usually. But we just have to make use of the good days. And I'm, I'm very fortunate that looking back, I have far more good days than bad days. But yeah, just do something. Also, I think kind, kindness that you'd always, you wouldn't even blink to display to others. You need to start showing yourself. So that could be making your bed, opening a window, making yourself a cup of tea, having a shower. But it's like self-care, isn't it? Like I'm worthy yeah, of. Yeah, exactly. I mean, ultimately we're just, we're just monkeys. We're just chimpanzees. And that was one of the first things. At my lowest, I hadn't showered in weeks. I was living in fairly putrid conditions. It was horrible. If I don't shower for a day, even now, I, I, feel, I feel slightly worse. I don't feel... And also, I think it's um, the warmth and the nourishing and the, it's, it's more than just physically being clean for me personally as well. I think a shower can also give you some emotional warmth if perhaps that's lacking in your life with the, the warmth and everything. And emotional clarity sometimes, just like cleaning off the debris from your own mind, just the, doing physical external things do have an internal metaphorical kind of experience where you feel cleaner inside. And I was really interested in, in like micro kindnesses to yourself, you know, that we can have micro aggressions, like in some ways, not turning the lights on in your car that can build up and lead to death, but also in the path to kind of trying to have more good days than bad days you can have micro kindnesses so don't make the mountain too big to climb but do the small because that's impossible but do the small things that help you for the time that you described when you were living in a kind of putrid state and you didn't wash and you knew that you were loved by your parents and your siblings looking back now is there anything that they could have done? I don't mean this from a critical perspective, but from a kind of hindsight perspective that might have helped you. I think when I was living in those conditions, I was so far gone, I needed very drastic help. And I think that's part of them because I was I was lying to them at that point. I was calling them almost every day and saying, I was okay, I'm fine. I'm going to lectures, I'm eating, when I just, none of this was true. But Gosh. at that time, I think I needed quite serious help possibly something drastic. In treatment. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But I uh, was sort of in free fall a little bit. I think don't be afraid to have the difficult conversations because you're never bringing the ideas to the table. You, they, they are fully aware. Um, so don't be afraid to say, oh, if I mention suicide, is that going to put the idea into their head? Because they're 10 steps down the road. They, they're aware, they know. So have those difficult conversations and have them early. Yes, because there is that idea, like, I'm not going to say, darling, do you feel suicidal? Because I don't want you to be thinking about that. And also, I think this is entirely my experience as a parent, so I'm not saying this for anybody else. But there's a, a level of your child's suffering that I find 
uneven as a th- not even, but as a therapist, you'd have thought I'd had a kind of quite a strong muscle about witnessing suffering. I find it unbearable to let myself know how much my child is suffering. So with you, if you were saying to me and I was your parent, I'm fine, you know, I'm okay, I'm going to lectures, I'd want to believe you because I couldn't bear to believe something else. So there's a kind of bias of like, I can't bear to see that. It's too terrifying. Well, that's like a two-pronged thing, actually. So the, the first thing is that's just a defense mechanism. And that's right. You have to, you can't be, we'd all be paralyzed. I mean, I I don't have a child. I can only imagine that the part of my brain, I feel like would be constantly dedicated to their well-being. And that could drive you crazy. 3am, are they sleeping okay? I think you have yeah. to be able to switch that off, especially if they're an adult. And secondly, and this goes to all carers, parents, therapists, whatever that is, you can't look after someone else if you're not in a good headspace yourself. So it's very difficult, especially when dealing with a parent-child relationship, but you must be able to be in a position to help others. Um, so if that means helping yourself, you you have to. You're, you're useless to your child or whoever you're caring for if you're in an awful position yourself. I don't think that comes naturally to parents especially, but ultimately it's, it's, it's putting the the mask on yourself in a in a plane crash or a, a going down plane, put your mask on before helping others. That absolutely applies yeah. to mental health. Yes, I was thinking exactly that, that metaphor, like you have to take care of yourself. You're 26 now. So it's been 10 years really since the first kind of slow steps down. And the crisis happened when you were... 19. 19 was when 19. I... I bought some tablets, which I'm not going to name for obvious reasons. Yeah, that was how I planned on one day. Just, I didn't set the date. I just planned on one day opening this packet, consuming the contents, and that would have been it for me. What happened? It's tough because all time, time lost completely all meaning. Uh, I don't even know how long I was in that that state for. I th- it was it was at least a couple of weeks Um Probably two weeks to a month. God, I, I, had feel, I feel chilled. I can still remember the how smell. How awful you must have felt. The tablets were really noxious, actually. They were really sulfuric. And yeah, but I um, I, I, I didn't take them. And I'm, I'm grateful to say that I was home. Um, my parents sort of scooped me up when they realised this is pretty bad. And they saw my living conditions firsthand. They actually didn't allow me to return to university after that. So I did my first term of my second year and they were like, right, this is it. You're, you're clearly very ill. You're going to come home, get better. And then you can, if you believe returning to university is right for you, you can. If not, so, so be it. And I actually went to a different university. I, I went to Bristol University and restarted first year again. That's when things took a dip again. Um, so I, I don't mind showing you. I am... Um, was getting blackout drunk. Oh. I was getting blackout oh, drunk so. several oh, times God. a week. And I actually fell through a window and uh, was rushed to A&E, stitched up and it was all fine. Yeah. So there's been a few different periods, but, you know, very thankful to say, you know, things are much, much better now outside of full-time education. It's, it's tough, especially for people who, you know, I think about going to university in the future, but it's, it's a wonderful place, but this also comes with lots of pressures, both academically and also we've all seen you know, flyers, posters of everyone having a laugh, having a great time, you know, the time of your life. So if you're not having that, if you're in fact having the worst time you've ever had, 
it does make you look internally and question, oh, well, what's wrong with me? If I can't enjoy this, what's what can I enjoy in the future? And that was the case the case for me. And that's why I used alcohol as such a heavy crutch. Can I just fill in the gap? You went back, your parents recognised what danger you were in. They brought you back home and you began to feel a bit better being at home. You begin to have a sort of structure. You got up every day. What? I'd say towards the end, I got up every day, but it wasn't a guaranteed. But no means, for, for a period of months, I was basically horizontal on the sofa. But I spoke to, eventually, I spoke to a psychiatrist in Bristol. It made a big difference, actually. I started oh, taking um, citalopram, which... Yeah. I was allergic to, and for me personally, there was almost no benefits. But one thing I would say is there is hundreds of different drugs, combinations, doses. You will find something that works for you. That it will work for you um, if you you know let it and try it and are willing to change things. I tried mirtazapine, but that yeah, that didn't work for me. It almost felt like it embedded itself in my brain, and I got severe brain fog and uh, extreme appetite, and it just overall the negatives outweighed the positives. So I decided to. Um, go completely cold turkey and nothing, which is right for some people, but I wouldn't recommend it. I think there is, these things do work and there w- there is one that will work for you. And you have to trust these people because um, a lot of them really do know what they're talking about. How did the psychiatrist help you? Was it by kind of going with you like, this doesn't work, okay, let's try that? Was it like listening to you, paying attention, working with you? knowing that you'd find something together, so giving you hope that there is a prescription out there that we can give you. Yeah, I just trusted him. He had a, he had a um, background in neuroscience. I'd done some neuroscience at one of the old universities. I just felt a good connection with him. I trusted him. He believed in you, though, maybe. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I felt like he genuinely wanted to help me, which I don't feel was the case with a lot of the GPs I spoke to. And that is not. I'm not blaming any GP. They're extremely busy and they're working. A lot, most of them are working the best they can in the framework they're given but you know 10 minute appointments checklists of are you currently suicidal well no i'm sat in your doctor's office tick and it's like <laughs> it doesn't there's quite a weird disconnect there but the the single most important thing i think i've heard anyone say he said you know you're ill don't you and up until that point i hadn't realized i was ill i thought i'd done something so big and so bad i deserved to be feeling this way oh Josiah. but i had no clue what it was it felt like a punishment and there was some weird guilt associated with it. And he was like... Like you were failing at being you in some way. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And he said, you wouldn't blame yourself for getting cancer, even though we, we all know there are several steps you can take to reduce your chances of getting cancer. You know, not drinking, not smoking and eating correctly. It's, it's quite rare that most people don't blame themselves for a cancer diagnosis. You need to stop blaming yourself for this mental health diagnosis. And you need to start realising you are ill. You need to give your time to sort of recover and uh, get better, really. And that's something I I was not doing. Gosh, that sounds such a a mind shift. Like from being like, there's there's something wrong with me, I'm failing, to I have an illness that isn't my fault any more than cancer is my fault. And so I can do the things like as if I had cancer to help myself rather than think somehow I'm, I'm imprisoned in this and I have to keep punishing myself. Yeah, it's almost showed me a, a chink in depression's armour, if you like. It sort of cracked the window on the house. I think there was a big turning point, that sort of mental shift. It was just, um, 
it's really simple. That one sentence did change things for me at that time. Uh, and I, I think they always will. I'll always look back to that conversation. Do you know, I have heard different versions of that so many times of there was this one thing. And in that moment, I felt seen or I could see myself or it, there was, it shifted my perspective. And, you, you know, if only we all had these magic words that we could say to people early on, and it, it's something to do with you being ready to hear it, the way he said it, the relationship you had with him, and the clarity of it. But it lifted the guilt. It lifted kind of so much stigma that came with it that is from ignorance, and that you felt very different. At that time, mental illness was something that happened to other mm -hmm. people. It wasn't something that happened to me. I didn't feel like it could affect me. It, did, it wasn't part of my world. I didn't know anyone. It wasn't talked about. It can affect literally anyone. Depression has no, 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 no. prejudice. Every single person is, is susceptible to this illness. So what have you learned now? I've learned that the small things do make a difference and they add up. Yes, I like that. And it's like trying to turn an oil tank. It's slow, steady. And, but eventually you, you realise, oh, I've come a long way. And it might not feel like it day to day, but you know these small changes really do add up. And so tell me about your life now. So you're 26 and you've had years of small changes and years of bad days and good days. And where has that got you now? One of the biggest differences, I allow myself to have, uh, for lack of a better term, mental health days. If I'm having, it could just be an afternoon. It could be a 20 minute nap, but I'm like, you know what, I need this. And I just take the pressure off society, whatever daily life might be for me, and just say, I'm taking mental health day. And that's, that's a big thing. And that, and that, in a way, it, paying attention to what your psychiatrist said of, you have a mental illness, you need to treat the mental illness. And in my terms, it's like, be compassionate to yourself. Don't punish yourself and give yourself criticism because you're feeling low or you just, this feels too much for whatever is going on. But give yourself a break. Yeah, definitely. It's that, it come, all comes back to that self-kindness thing we've spoken about. If you noticed someone else you cared about, or even if you didn't care about, just a stranger, you'd say, take 20 minutes, yeah. you really need it. But it's the ability to say that to yourself, like that does go a long way. And so the, what is the quality of your life now and your relationships? Did you leave Bristol? Yeah, I left, I left Bristol. I do not have a degree, but my, my quality of life is, ex is extremely high. I um, allow myself to write, just be happy, Amazing. peaceful. Very recently, I think it's never fair to sort of attribute things that are going on in your life to, to other people. Ultimately, it is down to you to sort of be the difference and, and make the changes. But I've met an absolutely wonderful partner and she helps me and she's great, you know, really understanding and kind. I think she's made a big difference to my life, which is, which is lovely. I mean, uh, my daughters will listen to this afterwards. So I wonder if they'll agree. I'm not sure that they will, but I do think love has the capacity to be curative, like being loved is is medicine. Especially when it comes down to that connection element of it, because it's hard to feel loved and isolated at the same time. You know, it's not the case for me, but I can understand, I could see how it could be you and this person versus the world, as opposed to just you versus the world. It feels like you've got a partner to whatever challenges may, may lay ahead. And it can soften your self-criticism, can't it? When someone's being really kind and really loving, it can model it for yourself that you can then be kinder to yourself. And then it becomes a reciprocal kind of feedback loop where you're getting more good into your system between each other and with each other and for yourself than the negative. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, but that can obviously go the inverse as well. And that's why it's it's just being aware of all these things, um, you know, it gives you the toolkit you really need. And it, I didn't even know these tools existed, let alone uh, how to utilize them myself. But yeah, I, I don't think it's, I think you have to, it's important to sort of work on yourself and get yourself to a position where you're able to look for a partner and be a good partner. It's, it's I think, completely unreasonable and unfair on sort of just hoping and wishing, sort of laying future sort of goals on a human who you don't even know exists yet, you know? Like one day I will meet this person and things will make sense or whatever. You have to, it has to start with you and you have to already be on your, far on your road to recovery before you should meet a partner, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense is that you, your relationship with yourself and your capacity to be in relationship with another needs to be a good enough one that you're available to take them in and available to express who you are. And when you're in the state that you described, when you are literally kind of utterly like a husk inside, you were in no position to be able to form a relationship with anyone else because you didn't have anything to give or receive. Yeah, and I think it would have been deeply unfair on on the other person. And also there was no uh, desire to want to do that at that no, time. No, you had, I mean... No, you had no energy for sex or relationship or anything. No, I had nothing in the tank. I was at 100% capacity and I was barely having sips of water. So That is such a powerful image, isn't it? You are 100% capacity and I barely could take sips of water. It is, it is literally like you were dead. Yeah, it felt very close. So do you look back at that version of you with what comes up for you as you remember you lying on that sofa, barely having sips of water. Well, at some points I felt like a, a monster. I didn't feel human. I felt like a sort of humans or something sort of happened over here in the distance. And that was sort of the world. And I was sort of isolated. I felt like I was in a pocket where time didn't really exist. I've said before, actually, I created a world where it was 3am all the time. 3am is is magical in, in some ways. You know, no one's expecting a phone call. No it's pressure. Just new. It can be quite <laughs> peaceful. Exactly. But I created a 3am 3, 3 24-7. It sort of really started to add up. Yeah. I'm so appreciative of you being so open and I think so many people will really benefit from your experience and what you've learned from your experience. And I guess, do you have kind of, given that now your life is is so much better, and you still have bad days. I guess what you're saying is I live with depression. Like I, I'm not trying to, I'm not imagining that I will one day wake up and have, be someone who never has depression. Kind of where are you with that now? I actually think I was, it took me about six months to look back and think, oh, I'm a lot better than I was. And then six months after that to think, oh, actually, I was still quite bad six months ago. There are things that to me were completely normal that that really weren't. <laughs> um, so so some, what's something like small and simple? Taking the bins out, for example. If I didn't fancy taking the bins out, there'd be a voice in the back of my brain going, don't worry about it because you can always end your life. And then you'd have to take out the bins Good ever Lord. again. Whoa. And that wasn't, that was not, that was not me planning to end my life. You know, that was just a voice in the back of my head that was almost a coping mechanism, you know, in some ways. 
It's and, a way of saying you know, no sure that you didn't from. have. But even when that voice was in my head, I thought I was still cured from depression because I wasn't. Things had started to come back. I started to feel more human, um, sort of connected with the world, happier, lots more good days. Having the option, even if it's in the back of your head, isn't actually as far down the road as I perhaps thought it was. So now I look back, I have nothing like wow. that. You know, I can have a really rubbish day. Thankfully, they're extremely rare, but there's no voice in my head. There's no, you know, in a monologue saying, well, you can you always know, end. There's, there is an alternative option to this bad day. That for me is almost my definition of a cure. It's something that I will always live with. It's something I'll always be extremely susceptible to. But just the the knowledge and just the awareness of this is part of me. Is that what that's what safeguards me really? It's the awareness that this is this is part of me. Yes, because being aware that this is part of you, you don't ignore the signs anymore. So you have preventative strategies. I imagine you you kind of respond to what you need. So do you have daily habits that you know that you need to do? I know you're talking about small kindnesses, but are there specific things that you know build a kind of protection, a kind of robustness in you that protects you? I know I, I, I've never once in my life felt worse after a shower than yes, before I had one. Good. I know things like that um, do add up. If I'm feeling decline, it might be taking the dogs for a walk. And I'm quite fortunate. I, I love walking in rubbish yeah, weather. Yeah, I do too. So you know, taking the dogs for a walk, you know, 365 days a year, just like simple things, a shower, a good cup of tea. It's almost like everything when it comes to this, everything is, isn't as simple and as clean cut as you'd like, but the ability to take uh, the joy and comfort of just a good yeah. cup of tea is something that, well, when I was depressed, I just didn't have the ability to do that. So it is chicken and egg and it is really the subtle things that add up and work. I like that so much. And I love the, seeing the spark in your eyes when you said a good cup of tea. I could really feel like the pleasure of, the, in some ways, having suffered so much and been so empty where there was no emotion for anything. You can really open yourself to the simple pleasure of a cup of tea and you can kind of recognize the joy and the gift of simple pleasures in a way that maybe those of us haven't suffered like you can't. I'd also say perhaps it's almost, I don't meditate, but it's almost the meditation to sort of give yourself the time to just sort of be in the moment and enjoy this cup of tea. It is, um, yeah, I think it is a form of meditation, if not, you know, directly, you know, there's a lot of hazy stuff around meditation and what that actually means. But I think just allowing yourself to just sort of be calm and there's no pressure alone with your thoughts and just sort of process things. That's what, benefits for me is at least yeah that's a wonderful place to stop Giselle thank you so much for your wisdom for your honesty thank god you're still alive and thank god that you're living and loving in the life that you have and that you are a long way from that you that was really suffering so badly no thanks so much to talk to you it's been an absolute pleasure thank you Now, listeners, it's that time of the show that many of you eagerly anticipate each week, the moment when I'm joined by my two incredible psychotherapist daughters, Emily, who's a child psychotherapist, and Sophie, who's an adult psychotherapist. Let's hear what they have to say about today's enlightening conversation. 
it was, I mean, for me, such a powerful and moving conversation. I wondered what your thoughts were. He was so generous, wasn't he, with his, with really sharing the depths of the places and the mindsets that he went to. And it made me think about clients that I've worked with and work with who are bereaved by suicide. And so often, and completely understandably, the question is, it's just incomprehensible. How could they have done that? You know, how could they, what about us or what about the children or what kind of headspace could have someone been in that that was an option? I imagine this might be very helpful for people who are stuck on that, because I think sometimes people can turn against themselves. Was I not enough? Were we not enough? You know, and I think that way that he described the kind of altered state that he came into at that time, I think was very powerful insight to those of us who perhaps have never visited those kind of places in ourselves. I thought he was very generous in sharing and, and eloquent about sharing that experience, which I imagine would be helpful to others. Yes, I, I really agree, Soph, that it's such a irrational act, right? Like taking your own life, that it feels very difficult if you haven't been in that state to imagine it ever making sense. And I think Josiah did a really beautiful job of a sort of gift of helping it make sense for other people. Also, when people are really determined to take their own life, there actually isn't anything that the people around them can do or or could have done, which is a devastating truth, but I think can lift the, well, if I had taking the car keys they wouldn't have been able to leave in the car or you know whatever the sort of what if conversations that I think people can understandably go round and round in their minds. And I think the line that was one of the many lines that was most powerful for me was when he said the level of planning and the level of disconnect. So it's like you go into a kind of completely different operating system where you can plan to end your life and yet at the same time be completely disconnected with everyone and yourself that matters in your life. And that sort of described perfectly how we can't influence other people, although we can influence it. So it's it's so difficult. I suppose what I meant was not that we can't influence it in, in terms of, you know, obviously his family supported him and allowed him to get help. I think what I mean is if somebody is very determined to take their own life, at the moment that they take their own life, there isn't probably something that you can do in that moment. Funny enough, what it reminded me of was when I've worked with people with eating disorders, where the sort of altered state sometimes where their world, they experience their world so completely differently to other people who are around them and what's important or what drives them or levels of disconnection. And not only that, but the fact that often the behaviours that doesn't happen overnight, it builds over time, but that some of the behaviours end up feeding that somewhat altered state. You know, he talked about it always being like, I made it always 3am, that not caring for yourself, not eating properly, not moving your body, not talking to people, sitting in dark rooms on your own. So for example, eating disorders, by not nourishing your body, it actually alters your brain chemistry. That means that you think differently. It can be cyclical you know, a vicious cycle in that when you feel low, the behavior, then you do change the end, the chemistry of your body and your brain that can spiral in that way. And, and equally, as he described, for as much as it was powerful, 
describing how low he was, he was also a story of hope, right? That it is possible to be that low, to be in such a state of unable to move or, or look care for himself, to now living a very rich life. And actually that day when it had a really good cup of tea, <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, when he was talking, I was like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel that, I feel how good that that mindfulness essentially that he was talking about of so I went and got myself a really good cup of tea when I after I listened to the podcast and sat on the window seat in my bedroom and I was like yeah this feels really good I think it's it is a lovely demonstration of that but I also think what makes it really rich is that it's not a Disney version if you are somebody who has chronic depression that's something you live with and you manage. It's not something that disappears and suddenly you're like frolicking with the cows every day. <laughs> it's something that you find ways that like Josiah has of managing it. And you might still have days where it's really, really hard to get out of bed. And I think what he already spoke to beautifully was the self-compassion around that, that he's learned to have as he's learned to live with depression. I think often when we have very dramatic, terrible things happen, we often want to equal it with dramatic changes and kind of huge things to kind of equal the badness or the difficulty. And what he spoke of is, what often we've spoken of, is how powerful small kindnesses are every day, whether it's having a shower or having a cup of tea or having a hug or going for a walk, and that, as Emily talked about just now, some days that isn't possible, but the days that it is possible makes means that your level stays at a kind of manageable amount. It protects you from spiralling. What hardship can also do if you are somebody who, when you have experienced hardship, receives empathy and receives compassion and receives support, I think... It allows you to be incredibly non-judgmental for the people around you because you never know what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes. And obviously it's impossible to do all the time. But I think it does give you this deeper sense of empathy for just strangers in the street. So often we can't change what we feel. But as you're saying, we can change how we relate to what we feel. Like So we can be self-compassionate towards whatever is going on for us if that resonates with people and I know we've mentioned it before selfcompassion.org the work of Christina Neff is really great but in particular I was I was just looking it up after this uh, episode and she has a definition of self-compassion that I thought I would read because I thought it spoke very directly to the wisdom that Josiah was saying and she says it's number one it's self-kindness compared to self-judgment it's common humanity rather than isolation and it's mindfulness rather than over-identification, which seemed to me like all the elements, essentially, that he of his own experience came to understand. And there's sort of then she gives a kind of fuller description. But I think if this spoke to people listening, then her website could be very helpful in kind of expanding those concepts. But also it has lots of meditations. It has exercises you can do to try and kind of work that muscle of self-compassion more into your way of relating to yourself. Yeah, that's really lovely. So, I mean, the thing I wondered with you two was when I said that as a parent, it is sometimes unbearable to actually fully look at your child who's suffering because there's a part of you 
that can't bear to actually see the level of it. You know, like when he was calling and saying that he was fine, I'd want to believe that my child was fine. It's not a conscious thing that you kind of know, oh, well, he's not fine and I'm not thinking about it. It's just that you you have a bias to wanting to believe that your child is okay. And then how devastating it is when, when they aren't. This is sort of slightly separate, but I, I did think about what he was saying in terms of, I think you asked him about, you know, what were the behaviours that now you can kind of look back on and notice were kind of warning signs in a way that started before he became really, really depressed about sort of with being more withdrawn and not interacting and things like that. And I think with teenagers, as parents of teenagers, I think it's very difficult to judge, like, is this just typical teenage behavior because teenagers go through so much or should I be concerned? And like, how do I balance trying to just let my teenager go through sort of typical teenage individuation, as it were, which is an important process that they need to go through with actually like, I I think we need to get some help and I need to intervene as a parent. So I'm trained in dialectical behavioral therapy, particularly for teens, and they have this very useful PDF (laughs) that I sometimes send to parents. But essentially, it has these two columns. Typical adolescent behavior would be moodiness, spending more time in their room, not always wanting to like hang out with their family. Cause for concern would be never coming out of their room, being very withdrawn, not ever seeing their friends. Sort of what we all know, like on a common sense level, but actually it can just be quite helpful to have it sort of specified, I think. It also reminds me that to think of adolescent as up to 25, you know, Josiah was 19, wasn't he? And that phase of children leaving home and going to university or going out into the world, if I'm still right, and I haven't checked recently, but the highest risk of suicide is boys, isn't it, between the ages of 18 to 25? That's right. I guess to flag for for parents to be conscious that that is a time that although they might on the one hand seem much more independent is still your brain is still changing and developing up to the age of 25 leaving home is a really massive transition and he talked about that didn't he that sort of fantasy that we tell and pass down of the time of your life and university being so marvelous and you're young and free and it can be such a challenging time and there's nothing abnormal about that. All the research shows that the loneliest time period is not when you're 80 or 90. It's like 16 to 20, I think. But that's the time when you should just be able to go to school and there's people, right? I think you can be very lonely with other people because you feel like you're different and no one can understand you. Like no one really knows what you're going through. Your family don't understand you. You can't tell your friends because it's hard to talk to people about that stuff, even when you're 40. Um, I think social media has an effect for sure because you're at home and then you see all your friends out shopping and they haven't invited you out shopping and like all of those things. I imagine it also correlate with high levels of self-criticism and high levels of shame. I mean, it's such a sensitive time, isn't it, for both of those things. We feel so easily self-conscious in that period of adolescence, um, easily feel shame and lost and critical of yourself. I guess that adds into the sort of alienation feeling. What was also interesting was that feeling very depressed or being very depressed doesn't happen overnight and nor does recovery. It's sort of turning the tanker towards feeling better is slow and takes a long time, as well as, you know, when it's going in the reverse. And so so like to be 
patient and to do the small things. And yet some of the small things are huge, like when his GP said to him, you know you're ill, right? That kind of woke up something that other people may have said at different times or he somehow hadn't heard or no one said it to him, but that gave him light in himself, like I'm really ill and I need to do something about that. Mm. So for people listening, there's the Charlie Waller Trust, which has lots of information for young people and particularly for university and school. And there is also Papyrus that has information to prevent suicide for everybody, but it also has a bit for young people. And there's CAR, Campaign Against Living Miserably. So Josiah, I feel so, I was so touched by him and I could hear how hesitant my voice was, like I didn't want to kind of upset him. (laughs) But also he was so in some ways robust and able to describe so clearly his experience. And I think it, it is actually for me one of the most insightful conversations to suicidal ideation that I've ever heard. And I think it will be really helpful for thousands of people. So I couldn't be more grateful to him. Uh, And he's written a book as well, hasn't he, Mum? He has. And that's called The Boy Between, A Mother and Son's Journey from a World Gone Grey. And you can just get that on Amazon or wherever you get your books. And you can hear The Mother's Perspective from Amanda Prowse on one of our earlier episodes. Thank you, Emily and Sophie. And thank you all for listening. If you think this conversation is going to be useful for friends or family or anyone that you know, do please share it. Please rate and subscribe. And um, thank you for listening. Bye. tell you about a podcast I love and honestly I wish I'd been around when my children were younger. The Motherkind podcast explores how to feel happier, more confident and empowered in your motherhood, even in this world of pressure, judgment and comparison. Host Zoe Blasky is the UK's leading motherhood coach and I love her kind, wise and empathetic approach to the challenges mothers face today. Every week, she speaks to an incredible expert, such as Gabor Maté, Dr. Julie Smith, and me, to share actionable steps and powerful lessons to living your life as a mother with more joy and unapologetic confidence. Listen wherever you get your podcast. Just search Mother Kind.